This morning, we're cracking into chapter 5 in our study of 1 Peter. At some point in 2018, I expect to finish this book, so we'll, we'll see how we, we reach that goal, but uh, we are nearing the end. You know, he, what he has been talking about in the major uh, development of the major themes of the book is how God's people respond to suffering and persecution, among other things. And chapter 5 is one of those um, insightful chapters in the scriptures on leadership, and especially leadership in the local church. And um, it, there are a number of the authors in the New Testament talk about leadership. Uh, Paul does in First uh, and Second Timothy and in, in the book of Titus. The book of Hebrews near the end has some, some uh, important teaching on leadership. One of my favorite Old Testament passages is Exodus 17, where um, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, gives him some advice on being a leader. And it's, it's a wonderful chapter. I used that a lot when I was in leadership. But here, um, Peter uses a metaphor uh, that a leader is a shepherd. And that's what I want to develop and, and look at with you. So if you'll uh, turn with me or whatever your, your mode of looking at the Bible is. So I exhort the elders among you now, the word elder that is used there is presbyteros. What English word do we get from that? Presbyterian. Presbyterian. Now, that is not used here, but another, and they are used interchangeably in the, in the language of the original language of the Bible, is episkopos. What do we get from that? Episcopal or episcopal, correct. But these are the two Greek words that are translated elder in the New Testament. Now, did I lose you or are you with me? What's used here is this. So he says, as elders. So immediately when he uses that term, I mean, everyone in the early church would have understood he's talking to leaders. He's talking to leaders of the local church. Okay? And now notice what he does. So I exhort the elders among you. Now notice this, as a fellow worker and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be re revealed. Of whom is Peter talking there? Who's he talking about here? Talking about himself. So he's saying, and that's, that's kind, of, kind of important, I can identify with you people. I identify with your important role. He says, as a fellow elder, it's, in the Greek is sug presbuteros, it's, I'm in that role. And as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, how, how could he make that claim? He was, there. he was there. I mean, that's not a hard question, but because he was there. And then he adds, as well as a partaker, the word there is koinonia. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with that Greek term. As a partaker, a koinonia in the glory that is to be revealed. What's he referring to there? The glory to be revealed. What's that referring to? Transfiguration. Well, in the past, it would look back to the transfiguration of Christ, but this is future tense, so it's looking forward to, yeah, the Lord's return, when his glory will be revealed and established, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, it, it's really a, a, a remarkable statement of Peter trying to identify with these guys, and um, I guess I'll say gender-specific because they were all men in those early years as elders, 
but anyway, he said, I can identify with you guys. I'm a, I'm a fellow elder, but I'm also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So when I've been instructing you about these things, I saw it, but also in that always anticipation to take of the glory that's to be revealed. And that word revealed is used a number of times, the Greek word of Jesus' return for his church. So here's his instruction then. Shepherd the flock of God. So that's why I put elders, and I just put equal sign. Their, their role as an elder, a leader, is to be as a shepherd. It's a simile, as a shepherd, okay? Now, um, that's interesting, isn't it? By the way, the word that we take when we take shepherd from Greek into Latin and we take it from Latin into English, is pastor. That's where we get the word pastor from. If, if some of you uh, are parts of Protestant churches, and probably most of your church leaders, you call them pastor, pastor such and such. It really comes from this. So a pastor is a shepherd, shepherd the flock. Now let's talk about that a little bit. What kind of animals does a shepherd work with? Sheep. And they're not, God created the sheep, they're, they're beautiful animals to look at, they're kind of nice to stroke, they're not real dirty, but you know, it's just, but you know, they're, they are the dumbest animals that God has ever created in many ways. Um, so, they're, they're, they're in need of constant guidance. Yes, yeah, thank you for <coughs> soft peddling the stupidity of sheep. Uh, Years ago, a man named Philip Keller wrote a book entitled A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. He is from England, uh, North Country, and his whole life he was a shepherd. And so he, he you know, loved the Lord. He spent a lot of time. He was kind of a part-time pastor, too. So he decided after a series of sermons to write this book. And I'm telling you, that is one of the most enlightening books I've ever read because he takes each one of the little statements, phrases, or entire sentences in the 23rd Psalm and helps us understand what they mean when you're talking about sheep. And who are the sheep? We are the sheep. <laughs> so it's just, it's really interesting of all of the figures that the Lord could choose to talk about leaders and to talk about the people whom the leader is leading, shepherd, flock which, as Fred correctly said, sheep need continual guidance. So does the church. I've been involved in church ministry almost my entire adult life, and honestly, that is true. The church is a messy place. I mean, it really is. It's a messy place. Because as you start getting involved in people's lives, you see there's just, there are lots and lots and lots of issues. And you're constantly giving counsel. You're constantly giving guidance. And very, very brilliant, intelligent, successful people say, I don't know how to do this. What, what, what is God's perspective on this? And so you open the word of God and share that with them. I'm saying, so it's, it's really insightful, I think, to just keep in mind shepherd flock. And that's what Peter's saying. You guys who are the presbyteros, you're the shepherd. 
And so, now follow the analogy. The shepherd had better know where he's going. Or the sheep, as Philip Keller says in his book, a, a wayward sheep will go over to a cliff and fall off the cliff. And you know what the rest of the flock will do? They'll follow that sheep and do exactly the same thing. Which is just per stupidity, you know, magnified. But that is exactly exactly how many humans can be. They'll follow a false teacher very easily. They'll follow a false leader very easily. This sounds good. And Peter is just dumping an enormous responsibility in this analogy. You're a shepherd of the flock. And your responsibility, and I put it up there, is to exercise oversight. And uh, that's a wonderful translation, but let's think about exercise oversight. What does that mean, oversight? Kind of watch over the flock. Yeah, yeah, you're watching over them. You're not... You're not taking them by the hand and coercing and forcing them, but you're watching over them. A pastor has an enormous responsibility. I mean, I, I maybe should say it this way. A pastor who's very serious about what he's doing is has an enormous responsibility. And you have to prioritize things. You have to decide what's most important. But he's describing this oversight. And now he did, and that's what I tried to do with this other thing here, What's your motivation to be as you approach this role as shepherd giving oversight to the flock? And so he mentions three things. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in charge, but being examples to the flock. So you have three primary characteristics in or motivate motivations not under compulsion. What does that mean? Forced to. Yeah. Not, nobody's forcing you to do it. And if somebody's forcing you to do it, you're not going to be a good shepherd. But not under compulsion. Nobody's forcing or coercing you, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, you're willingly doing this because you believe this is what God wants you to do, and you're not in it for personal gain. It's willingly. And I, very, very few people enter ministry with the idea of getting rich. Because that's, that's just not going to happen <laughs> unless you are fraudulent and do illegal things. But, I mean, the point Peter is making is, this is really significant. Make sure you really want to do this. Make sure you really want to do this. Because if you don't really want to do it, don't, don't do it because somebody's motivating you out of guilt. Terrible motivator anyway. Don't, don't do it because you think you're going to get rich, make a lot of money. No, you want your decision to line up with what God wants you to do. Is this really what the Lord wants you to do? You're doing it willing. So it's always check your motives. Always check your motivation for why you're doing what you do. In this case, he's saying in terms of this role as a shepherd, a, a, a presbyteros, a, one who's going to exercise oversight over these, these sheep. Secondly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being, um, but eagerly not dominating over those who are in charge, domineering over those who are in charge. So an eager 
that, that word eager is, um, that's kind of a hard word. I'm not sure that's the best translation um, of it uh, as, a, as a word. The uh, New American Standard says, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example. So you're not lording it over people. You're eagerly leading them. You're identifying with them. There is an element of compassion and grace, but you're not domineering, and, and the NASB has lording it over them. What does that mean? Not telling them that you're more important than them. You're equal to. Mm. Mm. Probably not the right. No, really, that's well. That's that's not bad. It's one of the, in my view, anyway, um, and I think that's supported by Scripture. It is really, really important that you are not communicating to your people that you're some super spiritual giant. That the struggles they're having are the same struggles you have. You think pastors struggle with lust? You think pastors struggle with the, with the tendency to, to be greedy? You think pastors struggle with selfishness and self-centeredness? Do you think pastors struggle with pride? Do you think pastors struggle with um, a self-indulgent approach to things sometimes? Um, do any of you know uh, the, the name Chuck Swindoll? Do you know that name? I mean, he's a pretty familiar uh, pastor now. He's written a lot of books. He's on the radio a lot. But he's one of my, he, he was president of the school. I, I went in graduate school for a number of years. He's still president emeritus, I think, or chairman emeritus or something like that. But the thing I like about Swindoll, and he's so good in his preaching, he's a very good preacher, but he, he often shares his very personal issues and struggles. As he's making a point, I think that's important. Why? So that you guys don't think he's some super spiritual guy who's made it, and he doesn't have any struggles. So here I am pontificating, telling you, here's what you do. That's that's probably not a wise approach, for, but many pastors do that, and create that two tiers of Christianity. Every here, buddy here that's struggling in the elite that aren't. <laughs> I'd like to hear it when a pastor will admit stubbing his toe. You know, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I, an old guy in AA was sober forty some years when I got sober, and now I've got forty some years. But, mm. but he used to say that every time he gets his shoes shined just the way he wants them, he invariably steps in a mud puddle. Mm. <laughs> that's so true. Again, back to AA. You know, when we found AA, we found our sobriety. We're to share that with others, and usually we're so excited about it that we found sobriety that we're willing to do that, but not in telling them where we screwed up mm. and the mistakes that we made and, and what we did about it. Mm. And, and we see the same thing in Christians many times they get so excited about finding the Lord mm. that they go out and knock on doors, want to tell people about it. You yeah, know? yeah, and you, we know so many people that could really use it, absolutely. Because you know what the Lord's done for you. Yeah, that's really good. Well, I, I think that's in, in line with what the Apostle Peter is really saying here is the second quality or characteristic of effective 
shepherd-like ministry. Not domineering, not lording it over, not creating that two tiers of spirituality. And he says then, thirdly, but be examples to the flock. I've been in education most of my adult life, too, and I've learned something that is right at the very beginning of the Bible. What is teaching? What is teaching? Now, that's a ridiculous question. Isn't it kind of sharing information you've learned? Okay, sharing information you've learned. So there is a teaching, a kind of a formal time of instruction, I mean, whatever the subject is, whatever the topic is or whatever. But then what follows that is a modeling of it and it being an example of it. Uh, did you ever, I don't know, I think all, I don't know all of you, in your, but many of you, if not most of you, either are raising children or you've raised children. Um, did you ever notice how quickly little children pick out inconsistency? <laughs> did you ever notice that? Now, they, they get beyond that. <laughs> but it's really, I remember so many times with my kids, just little things. Well, Daddy, you said we shouldn't do that, but you're doing it. I remember one time, Jonathan and I, we used to use something called Family Walk, which was a little, very short devotional type thing with kids. And Peggy would be with Joanne, I'd be with Jonathan. And one time it was on government and authority or something like that. And we read some verses, talked a little bit about it. And, uh, you know, I said, Jonathan, what would that look like in your life? Like, authority. Who, who are we to obey? You know, God gives us authority. God gives us people to help us. Uh, and he said, oh, policemen? Yeah, that's good. Firemen? Yeah. Uh, the mayor? Yes. The president? Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. You're getting it. So the next day, um, he was with me, and I used to get, I, I read some out of town newspapers, and I would there was a drugstore right at 50th and Dodge, and I pulled right up in front of it. And just as I was ready to go out to the, get out of the car, John said, Daddy, that sign says no parking, bus stop. <laughs> so, you know, what I wanted to say, Jonathan, be quiet. I'm just going to run in here in a couple of minutes and I'll be right out. But immediate, immediately on the line is, does Daddy believe what he teaches? And I said, and I only by the Lord's grace did I say this. Honestly, I mean that. Because my I was so, so close to saying, Jonathan, I'm just going to take a minute. I said, son, thank you for reminding me. You're right. Praise the Lord. There was space ahead. I could just pull right up and get away from that sign. But I, I, I don't know why that just stuck in my mind for years because he was about six or something. He was real small. But that's, Peter is saying, shepherding the flock, you had better do what you are telling them. If you're not going to live it, don't teach it. Hendricks used to, uh, Howard Hendricks was a guy I studied under. He used to tell us in our groups, guys, if you're gonna, if you're not gonna be serious about your faith, please don't tell anyone you're a Christian. Hide it. Hide it. Now he was being. That's. I don't know if any of you know who Hendrix was, but he was that guy. His powerful zingers with a twist of humor, 
And it's just you never forgot those, those, those important directives from the mouth of this, this man who was very serious about what he's saying. And so Peter is just saying, as an episcopos, a presbyteros, who exercised oversight over these stupid sheep, you better live what you teach. Who did that? Do you think that Christ, part of this was uh, Peter's recalling, uh, I think it was in John or something, when he reappeared, and I think they were on the shore or something, and, and End of gospel Christ said three times, do you love me? You love me. And he said, feed my sheep. And then he said the same thing to To me, that just all ties in. Absolutely. Yeah, John, John, that's a really good connection point. The end of the Gospel of John, that's what uh, Jesus said. Okay, Peter, you're restored. Your denial of me, it's over. You, you've reiterated your love for me. Now feed my sheep. you got a big assignment to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And who, in, in the next verse, uh, makes that connection. Who is Peter's model? Christ was. The chief shepherd. Do you remember in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I... Am, well, first he says, I'm the door, which into a, a, a shepherd's pen, but I'm the, I'm the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd. And so Jesus is taking that same model. I am a shepherd. I, I'm like what I'm asking you guys to do, and as you said correctly, what he told Peter to do. And so he then gives this tremendous motivation, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So verse 4 is like, and I know we've talked about this kind of teaching before, a future promise should govern present behavior. So Peter is laying out, this is eternally significant to the Lord. How you carry out your role here is eternally significant to the Lord, because he's going to reward you for it. Now this is always problematic. Does this literally mean a crown? I mean, it there's been a lot of stuff written about this and the, 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 how we think about it. I, I, I'm always struggle a little bit with how to teach this. So I always put it this way. Exactly and precisely what this means, a crown of glory. The point is, this future promise should govern your present behavior. And there are two things about it. Number one, it's convicting. And number two, it's very comforting. But it's convicting in the sense that the chief shepherd is watching what I do. I mean, he's given me this responsibility, not really matters how I carry it out. And it's so serious to him, it's so important to him, it's so significant eternally to him that he's going to reward it. So this is, a, this is an insight into, and there are quite a few of these in the scriptures, but this is an insight into how, how does the Lord look at leadership? This is leadership in the local church, but how does the Lord look at that? And this is, this is an important passage that helps us to see that. We had a, uh, an elder meeting, I'm on you know, my church, uh, we had an elder board meeting on Monday night, and uh, my lead pastors asked me to do a devotional each time the board meets, and we're going through the pastoral epistles. And it was just coincidental that we were dealing with this idea of elders being shepherds. It's a theme Paul develops. And I've referred to this passage because I've been studying it for this class and just reminded the men on our board how important it is that we take this, this whole issue 
of being shepherds, exercising oversight, really seriously. Because, again, because of verse 4, it is an eternally significant responsibility. And so that kind of, that kind of uh, just reflection, you, you, when you're talking about leadership, you're just not filling slots. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? You're just not filling slots. You want people to take it seriously. And you want to make sure you are taking it seriously when you try to get people assigned to various issues of uh, responsibility. And here, of course, it's within the church. So uh, it's a magnificent, it's very short, but a magnificent passage. It really is. It really summarizes how the Lord looks at leadership and how, therefore, you and I are to look at leadership when it comes, in this case, it's specifically in the church, but leadership issues are rather consistently dealt with throughout the scriptures. Okay, any comments or questions? Everybody with me? I really should say with Peter. Well, then verse 5 through verse verse 9, he begins to talk a little bit about, and they are very connected, but nonetheless I think it's important to make that distinction, the issue of character when it comes to leadership. Um, what, what does character mean? If I were to ask you, which I am now doing, to give a definition of character. How would you define it? Don't give me an example of character. An example of character is integrity. But what is character? How one carries oneself okay. in every circumstance. How one carries oneself in, in, in various circumstances. Okay. One's, Any other shots at it? One's essence. One's essence? That's very succinct. Distilling it down to, here's who I am. <laughs> ah, yeah. Yeah, a consistency. A, a, a consistency in our actions and our essence and, 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 and so on. It's kind of a, a set of traits that we consistently exhibit. You can have a very poor character, a disreputable character, can't you? A nefarious, an ugly character. What Peter's talking about here is the kind of the kind of character those consistently exercised set of traits that should characterize leaders. In my church uh, right now, I just started a series on Daniel. I'm only doing the first six chapters. My pastor wanted me to do. But I entitled the, 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 the series, Daniel, A Study in Character and Consistency. In his first six chapters, Daniel, as a person, he's kind of the main subject. And then the rest of the book, again, there's some prophetic teaching and stuff. But it's really, it is remarkable. And my favorite word in chapter one, and do, do you remember enough about that, that? You know, he's now taken into exile. He's being trained in the court of Nebuchadnezzar to get into the public civil service of Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes through a training program and so on. And they want him to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They want him to eat what the court eats. Daniel's a Jew. Daniel's not supposed to eat non-kosher food. He's not supposed to drink non-kosher drink. He's not supposed to eat things sacrificed to idols. 
And the word ESV uses this word, and the word is Daniel resolved to do what the Lord wanted him to do. Isn't that a great word, resolved? He decided beforehand the kind of person he was going to be. And regardless of the test, he was willing to accept, if it need be, punishment and judgment from King Nebuchadnezzar. But he resolved to not defile himself. Now, I'm 70 years old, so I don't get to do this very much, but I used to be speaking at youth conferences and stuff all over the country, a lot. I did a lot of that stuff. And I used to address youth. You know, these are high school kids, sometimes early college, usually high school kids. This, is what I, this was always the theme of the messages. You must decide beforehand the kind of person you want to be. You really do. I would say to the young gals in the audience, the time to decide the kind of girl you want to be in terms of with your body is not when your parents are gone for a weekend and you and your boyfriend are alone in the house. That's not when you make that decision. Or in the backseat of your boyfriend's car and it's late at night and there's nobody around. That's not when you decide. You decide before you resolve to be the kind of person God wants you to be. You set up the boundaries. You set up the parameters of your life. That's why I love that study of Daniel. He resolved to not defile himself. He decided beforehand the kind of person he was going to be, loyal and devoted to his God. And so Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That's not a popular idea. To you know, say that today in 21st century, youth-oriented, youth-obsessed culture, younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in that first paragraph, you have two very important character traits of leaders. Be in submission to those who are older. Have a, let's put it this way, let's paraphrase it. Have a teachable spirit. And be humble. Humility toward one another. Now there are like flip sides of the same coin, really, but that teachable spirit where, you know, young couples who are just married, our church tries to do that, but young couples who are just married, you know one of the most important things to do is link them with an older married couple that's had a pretty stable marriage. <clears throat> Even if they haven't, but, you know, they've been married for a long time, they've learned a lot, link them up. Why? Because they can learn something. <laughs> you can help them avoid a lot of the issues that are... Because first, I don't know those of you who are married, but those first years of marriage, particularly those first five years of marriage, are really important years, and they're often difficult years. I mean, you first get married, you think it's going to be eternal bliss, and you start living together, and it's, it's, you know, find out you do things different. Well, my mother doesn't do it that way. That's what my wife said that, you know. <laughs> and I had to learn what she meant by that. And, you know, it was things like um, in, in my house, we always put put the cap on the toothpaste. <laughs> in my house, the toilet seat was always down. That's my wife speaking. So we've been married, it'll be soon 49 years for 
48 years and 360 days, the toilet seat has been down. <laughs> and for 48, 360 days, the cap has always been on the toothpaste. Because it didn't take me very long. You know, that's really wise. That's just a wise thing to do. Now, I'm being a very facetious and adding humor here. But Peter is saying, you, you who are younger, learn from the older. That's a major, major principle of the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul sets up a whole structure for this, where the older are to be teaching the younger. Would you say that's a core value of the United States of America in 2018? I don't think it is. Do you? I, I mean, I, and I'm not trying to be glib or dismissive or even uh, cynical. It's just as an observation, and I think... I think we can probably conclude that's not a good thing. But the part of it is the older don't particularly want to teach the younger. We've done our job. Get away. You're on your own. I'll see you. <laughs> We're retired. We don't want to do anything with these young people. And, and then the other part, of course, is the young people are they're just so, and I was young once, and I think all of you can, you don't, you, you're independent. You, you don't want to be under Reddy's authority. So that, it's just, it rubs, it's counterintuitive in terms of our culture. And it is not understood, but it's a valuable principle. And then he says, with humility toward one another. Why does he put, now I'm reading from the ESV, with humility toward one another. Um, what, is, what does that mean? Why doesn't he just say be humble? NASB has it the same way. Humility toward one another. What, what does that mean? String that together. Humility, you got that. But he, it's not how he says it. He says humility toward one another. <clears throat> what does he mean by that? Others' interests first. Other, you mean other people's interests first? Yeah. And for your own? That's good. I think it reflects standard of behavior both from the elder to the younger and from the younger to the elder. And I think it's an instruction about how they should relate to each ah, other. Very good, very good. In this kind of a context where the elder can be teaching the younger and the younger can be submitting and learning, um, the elder should not assume the demeanor. Well, I know it all. Sit down. I'll tell you what to do. Uh, humility is, well, what would that look like? What would that look like? What should be the demeanor of someone who's older trying to give instruction and guidance to someone younger? What's that look like? You listen first. Okay, good. Humility is always marked, among other things, by being a good listener. Mm-hmm. Yes, George. I have a friend who's 13 years old. Wonderful. And uh, I learn as much from him Mm. sometimes as he does from me. Mm. And one of the things that I've learned during this process is that you acknowledge that you've learned something from him Mm. and thank them for it. It It's a powerful message to them. Mm. And um, that's a great illustration. Uh, he always acknowledges when he's learned something. Mm. 
So it's it's it really is powerful. And George, what you're really communing they communicating there both verbally and non-verbally <coughs> is you're equals. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that, you, yeah, you know, exactly. I'm not better than you. I, just because I'm older, I'm not. Uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, we're equals. We're in this together. Exactly. You know? yeah. And I love that. Being a good listener, and then that's a powerful illustration. I mean, it really is. Uh, you're all f- familiar with a word today that we use quite, quite frequently is mentoring. I kind of used to talk about his discipleship, but now mentoring. And Tom Osborne, you know, has a mentoring, very significant mentoring um, organization. And then uh, Mike Yanni set up one, too. I was involved in both of those for a while. But um, in both cases, as you get go through some of the instruction, that's exactly what they're saying. That, that kind of counsel is be sure you listen to them. And be sure you acknowledge when you're learning something or receiving something from them. Because they do have something to teach us often. Um, I mean, some of the, the, uh, oh, some of the African-American kids particularly, I've never worked particularly with Hispanic children, but some of the African-American kids, when you listen to them, they, are, they, have, they have experienced things I've never experienced. They've been through things and learned things that in often a very hard way, I've never, ever, ever experienced. And so Peter is just saying, in this kind of a relationship with the younger, it's really important that you exhibit humility toward one another. That's, that's, that's good advice in any relationship, really. Certainly good relationship in marriage, good relationship in parenting, a good counsel in parenting. And then Peter lays a theological bombshell on us. And I think all of your translations have this for. You could translate that because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter is paraphrasing Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 there. That's what he's paraphrasing. God stands against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's take that apart. What does that mean, he gives grace to the humble? What does that mean? That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? You just want to say, amen, <laughs> gives grace to the humble. Amen, yes. What does that mean? I don't know. It just really sounds good. So what does it mean? He gives grace to the humble. That was not rhetorical, by the way. I, I, <laughs> yeah? I guess to get this mental picture, but I've got an uncle who is so concerned. Just, oh my gosh. Uh, he, he would never hire anyone, well, he's retired, but would never hire anyone with tattoos or piercings. Uh, to me, humble would be Willard sitting down to coffee with... Somebody is all tatted <laughs> up, and, and them having a conversation, actually listening, mm. and interacting, and and both of them coming away with something. That to me would be humility. That sure would be. <laughs> That's a great example of that. Absolutely. And in doing that, your it's your uncle, you said, yeah. Uncle Willard, would be exhibiting grace. Where's that grace come from? From God. 
that's this is this is an important phrase. God gives grace to the humble. That's why I want to spend a couple of minutes on. It. Then we'll go back to the issue of pride. Um, God gives grace to the humble. Normally, when you think about grace, or you read about grace, or you hear somebody teach about grace, they're always connecting grace to what? Salvation, right? By grace through faith you're saved. Not of works, less than a man should boast. That wonderful Ephesians two eight passage. But that's all we saw. This has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with justification. Nothing to do with your standard. God gives grace to the humble. So that's why we have to broaden our understanding of grace. God is the one who's giving the grace. What does that mean? Well, I would, I, mean, I don't know if it's, this is right or not, but I would think the sense here is that he empowers them to live a humble life and build humble relationships. That's that's good. Because you're not coming to him out of proud pride and haughtiness and arrogance, but independence. Independence is an ex- exhibition of humility, and God, God responds to that. Is grace something we deserve? By definition, it's not. So, Joel, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, to me, sometimes I think of grace as, you know, kind of maybe leeway or latitude or, you know, wiggle room, even, if you want to say it that way. And I think, you know, I'm a banker, and sometimes a customer comes in and they are struggling to make a payment or whatever. Mm. You know, there's two approaches. They can come in and say, well, you know, here's what the bank needs to do to help me, and well, so on and so forth. And they can say, hey, I'm, I'm in trouble. As my dad used to say, they come with their hat in their hand and they say, "Hey, I, I really need help." You know, and, and which which one are you more mm. apt to really go out of the way to help? The one that comes in with That's humility good. and acknowledges maybe they've made a mistake or they had a problem or they did something, you know, wrong, and and but says, "Hey, here, you know, what do I need to do to to make this right?" Versus being brash and you owe me something. Yeah. I'm demanding I'm right. demanding it. Right. You owe me this. I'm a customer. That's why I'm giving you all of it. Yeah, that that's excellent. That's an excellent, excellent illustration. You go to God for help and saying, All right, God, I need your help. It's about time after all I've given you twenty years of my life now. <laughs> that's arrogance. That's entitlement. That's pride. But God gives grace to the humble. It's, Lord, it's every, we've talked about this before, every day waking up and acknowledging our dependence on the Lord. That's humility, that's dependence. That's the person God showers his grace upon. Because remember, grace is you don't deserve it, you don't merit it, you haven't earned it. There isn't a big Excel spreadsheet, okay, finally you've crossed that line, now you'll get it. That's not grace. God Super abundantly showers grace upon those who are humble. Remember when Paul asked the Lord, uh, you have to go back to 2 Corinthians for this, but Paul talks about have a thorn in the flesh. What that is has been debated for 2,000 years. We'll never figure it out. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven and find out what it was. But whatever the thorn in the flesh was, he says, Lord, take it away from me. Please take it away from me. How many times did he ask? Remember? Three times. Three times. And God said no. Because in weakness, you are dependent upon me. 
And so then Paul says, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to take it away. This cultivates dependence. So my grace, my grace is sufficient. I will give you what you need to do what I'm asking you to do. Not because you deserve it, not because you earned it. So that's sufficient. Can I tell you a story? When I was uh, a very young man and I'd just been ordained and I was, I think I may have told you this if I did, but it illustrates what was a very powerful demonstration of my own life of the sustaining grace of God. It was time for me to say my very first communion. And uh, at that time, they didn't have plastic cups. It was glass. And so just imagine those, those containers filled with glass that are filled with, we didn't use wine, grape juice. So they're heavy, and this is a big church. So this is what I was thinking. I am going to start, and then I'm going to pass these out to the elders. I'm going to drop them. They're so heavy. I know. And I'm just thinking of all the scenarios of everything that can go wrong. I'm a young buck. I've never done this. <coughs> and at the church, the, the, the pastor was multi-step. One group of pastors would enter from this door and come into the front of the church. Another would enter from this. So I'm standing here with the worship minister and I forget who else it was, uh, one of the other guys in staff. Anyway, and I must have looked terrible. I mean, I, it just must have been so visible. I'm shaking, and, 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 and Jerry, the worship minister, came up, put his arm around me. He said, Jim, are, are you a bit anxiety-ridden? I mean, it was it just the tone of his voice. It was so kind that I mean, it's so obvious when he knew my answer was going. I said, "Jerry, I'm terrified," and I went through a couple. What if I do? He, and he just he squeezed pretty hard. Then he said, "Well, Jim, I would guess that God's grace is sufficient for that too." And he walked away. You know, I was just a, for me. That was a powerful reminder. He's quoting from what the Lord said to Paul. But is God's grace sufficient to sustain you in what he's asking you to do, which is lead communion that Sunday? Well, what's the answer to that biblically? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's how I should look at it. And it just, for me, that was one of those really important teachable moments on the grace of God. Not only the grace of God that saved me, it's the grace of God that sustains me to do what he's wanting me to do. I mean, I... I mean, I, that was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Seriously, it really was, you know, I was young. My parents were here. It was awful. But by the way, I didn't drop anything. And so, <laughs> I have no idea what I said. I don't remember the message, but uh, we got through it. So it's, it's a quality and character trait. Remember, a, a character is, is a, 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 the traits that we exhibit consistently. What traits do we want to exhibit Integrity, honesty, trustworthiness, humility, for example, as Peter's saying. So he then gives the instructions. Oh, how are we doing here? We got a couple more minutes. Humble yourselves, therefore, I'm in verse 6, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Will God exalt us? Will God honor us? Yeah. When? When Jesus comes back. Book of Ephesians says he will hold us up to the angels and say, this is the trophy of my grace. This is what it's all about. You know? And so he's saying, humble yourselves. Now, again, 
Future promise determines present behavior. Because under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. He will exalt you. He will honor you. He will hold you up. Well done, faithful servant. Enter the kingdom. It's prepared for you from the foundation of the world, etc., etc. So how do I do that? How do I humble myself? That's verse 7. It's a participle. It's a, it's a manner participle describing what humbling ourselves looks like. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Some of your translations might casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. That's too mild of a translation. Casting all your anxieties is a superior translation. I was anxiety-ridden that Sunday morning. And I had to learn from this older man to cast that on the Lord, trusting in his grace to sustain me. So let's think about that for just a couple minutes. Verse 7, casting. Remember, what you ought to do is make sure you're connecting Verse 7, with the command, humble yourself. Verse 7 is explaining how you humble yourself. <coughs> they're not two distinct thoughts, they're connected. How do I humble myself? Manner participle, by casting all my anxieties on him because he cares for me. Not arrogantly, Joel's, Joel's illustration of you know a person who's having trouble meeting the 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 uh, the, the uh, uh, parts of the loan and all of that, <clears throat> you know, arrogance, you owe me this, entitlement, or there's some real difficult things going on in my life. I'm having trouble. Is the way you can help me. Can, can you renegotiate this with me? Can you give me a little more time? You know, all those things that Joel's asked almost every day of his life. And so it's cast all your anxieties on him. What would be some examples of anxieties? Aside having to say communion on a Sunday morning when you're a young guy and everybody expects you to do things perfectly and you know you could blow everything out of the water. Well, I mean, life is just full of... That's exactly. Oh, you had an anxiety a couple of weeks ago with your surgery. We can be anxious about the snowstorm. Yeah. Well, the way to deal with that is go home, shut the door, and <laughs> no, I'm just. But you're right. I mean, that is that's an anxiety. But life is about anxieties, isn't it? I mean, you know, every one of us could go around the table and just share dozens of examples. What's another word for anxiety? Worry. Worry. Doubt. Doubt is is a, a part of that. Yeah, if you're the unknown, you're you're not sure what's going to happen. Yeah. <clears throat> my wife's one of my wife's favorite verses <clears throat> is Philippians chapter four. I believe it's verse seven. Don't worry about any. This is the Living Bible paraphrase, and that's what she quotes. Don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. So Peter doesn't say that here, but what's the antidote to worry? It's prayer, because it's your conversation with the Lord. It exhibits your dependency on him. It exhibits your faith and trust in him, because Peter says he cares for you. 
Now, you, you want that to go back to verse 4. He's our chief shepherd. He cares for us. Just like a shepherd cares for his flock. He cares for us. He's interested in us. And honestly, that is, you know, I, I just, I would, I, I would encourage you to just meditate upon that for just a little bit. He cares for me. How many people does he have to care for in any given moment? You know, it's not a few. It's not dozens. It's not hundreds. It's not thousands. It's not hundreds of thousands. It's not millions. At least in terms of the total number of people that name the name of Christ, it's close to two billion people. Whether it's all genuine or not, I don't know. But, I mean, just think about that. And yet, as John 10 says, again, one of the favorite verses of my, my wife, he knows your name. He knows your name. And so when Peter says this, he wants us to individualize this. He cares for me. Therefore, I should, and as, a, as an evidence of humility and dependence, cast all my anxieties on him. And um, you've heard me define prayer this way. Prayer is a dialogue between two people who love one another. It's just an ongoing conversation. And this is what Peter's trying to wanting us to do and think about in terms of our life. Because he cares for me. I cast all my anxieties and worries and intense, earth-shattering things I'm facing because he cares for me. And we, we can only get this started. I introduce it and we have to quit. But he gives us a very, very powerful reason to do this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. He's developing some other character traits. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like, it's a simile, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You have an enemy out there. You have an advocate. You have a friend who cares for you. It's the great shepherd. But you also have an enemy. And that's why you must be dependent on him. Because your enemy is out there to defeat you. So therefore, be sober-minded and be watchful. If you come back next week, we're going to talk about what those two mean, how they fit into this set of character traits that Peter's wanting to develop. Mm -hmm. Some, sometime, uh, I'd like to, uh, I don't know if we should do it this week or closer to my brother's surgery, but my younger brother, Pete, is... Uh, he has cancer, mm. and uh, lung cancer, and they're going to remove the lobe and to see how... The lungs? The, yeah. the lobe? I'm going to remove the bottom part of one. Okay. And, uh, when is that going to occur? It's going to be in about two weeks. Two weeks? So I could well, no, we'll pray for him now, and then remind me, we'll pray for him next week, too. Absolutely. What's your first... Pete, is it Peter? Pete. Pete? Pete? And his last name is Woodward. Yep. Very good. We will pray for Pete. Yes, Ed. Can we also pray for that uh, family? I think it's LaFleur, a young gentleman that was killed and shot in North Omaha. He's a young soldier. Oh, I saw and, that. And um, his father said his faith has been shaken. Please pray, pray for him. Mm, mm, absolutely. We can pray for him. Absolutely. Lord, we're grateful for the Word of God um, that is powerful and, and cuts like a two-edged sword. We're thankful for the Word of God that is 
inspired, as 2 Corinthians 3.16 tells us. It's sufficient for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. We thankful that we have the privilege of meeting on Wednesdays over the lunch hour to study it and apply it to our lives. We are taking our time working through this wonderful little epistle, and we're thankful that you teach us through it. Uh, we're thankful that you, Holy Spirit, inspired it, and you, Holy Spirit, promised to teach us in all things, guide us in all things. And so in that dependence on you uh, as we come to you, not out of arrogance but out of humility and dependence, we watch you do amazing things in and through our lives. Every one of us around this table can give testimony to your faithfulness and uh, that it is worthwhile casting our cares and anxieties on you because you do care for us. You know our name. You know each one of us. You know every unique aspect of us. And you know our weaknesses. You know our strengths. And so, Lord, thank you that you're that kind of God, that we can talk to you and bring anything to you. We're good, uh, very glad that Jim's back with us. Thank you for sustaining him through this, this major surgery. We continue to pray for the healing and uh, therapy and all the things he'll be involved in over these next weeks. Bring complete healing to that part of his body, and we just entrust him to you. We're so thankful he's here. We do think of Fred and give him uh, the uh, capacity to trust you and the grace that you've showered upon him. Be sufficient for him, and we pray for uh, Woody's brother, Pete, as he's facing in about two weeks this pre-major surgery in his lungs, and that they uh, have a pro an approach, a strategy to deal with that in his lung, the cancer. And we pray that would be successful. Lord, help Pete to, to cast his cares upon you, to let you take his anxieties, and we just trust that all to you. And we pray for this, really this whole family that's been affected by this uh, tragic, tragic murder there in North Omaha. Um, he, the father did express this is a test of his faith. So, oh, Lord, strengthen that faith in him. <clears throat> we live in an evil, broken world, and terrible things like this happen. And this is the kind of situation where we can learn so much through it, but we can see once again that the true answer to these kinds of tragedies is the Lord Jesus, our chief shepherd, who suffered, who knows everything about suffering that we can possibly know can identify us and strengthen us. I pray for that family. Strengthen their faith through it with, uh, with the assurance that their son is with you, and we just trust all of these difficult things to you. So, Lord, we are going into the rest of our day, and we think of tomorrow. Uh, I guess they're starting to be now more and more specific. It does look like we're going to get a fair amount of snow which always creates a lot of uh, difficult things in getting around the city, and we just pray that you'll protect everyone, and uh, we'll just commit those things to you as well. So thank you for our time together, and we ask your sustaining grace to the rest of this day and this week until we gather next Wednesday. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week. <coughs>